Turn now to the scriptures and to the book of Hebrews and Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land has drunk the rain, sorry, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly To the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. May God bless that reading of his word to our hearts. If you have your Bibles with me, we turn back to the book of Hebrews and our reading in chapter 6. Uh, The book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish believers 
possibly one congregation, possibly more. We don't know where they were. But they were becoming discouraged in their faith. Uh, They were no longer accepted by the Jewish community that they had once been part of. As Christians, they were not recognized as a legal religion under the Roman authorities, and so were suffering persecution. The letters probably written sometime before AD 70 and the destruction of the temple. And to add to these trials, their discouragements had been heightened by the fact that some had turned from the faith, as we saw in the first part of the chapter. Some had apostatized. They denied the faith. They'd left. They turned their backs on their initial profession. Uh, Like Demas, who, having loved the world, departed from the Apostle Paul. They proved to be seed which had fallen on stony ground. And these faithful believers seem to have been asking, is it all worth it? Perhaps they too were being tempted to go back to Jerusalem, back to Judaism, back to their old way of life. I wonder how you feel this evening as this new year is opening before us. We're already into the middle of February. But for the church in Great Britain, for a long period, persecution has been something others experienced. For all the news available to us about our brothers and sisters in other lands, persecution is or has been largely theoretical. And though we still do not experience what others are suffering for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our situation is changing. Recently, a British columnist wrote this. We now live in a culture which will have no truck with claims such as religious miracles or the existence of God. These are dismissed as the superstitious beliefs of a bygone primitive age of myth and bigotry. Similarly, Tim Keller, the New York pastor, has written, we are entering a new era in which there is not only no social benefit to being a Christian, but an actual social cost. In many places, culture is becoming increasingly hostile towards faith. Belief in God, truth, sin, and the afterlife are disappearing in more and more people, for whom Christianity is not only offensive, but incomprehensible. And if you take uh, literature from the Christian Institute, you may well have read uh, uh, an example of that recently in one of their uh, posts of a man who was refused permission to stand as a candidate for one of our main political parties. The reason being his Christian beliefs. And as this attitude continues towards the Christian faith, as persecution in more active forms 
begins to appear, and it will, unless the Lord intervenes in mercy and revival. Are not we, as God's people, in danger of being like these Hebrew Christians and being discouraged? I'm sure we already feel insignificant in the eyes of the world. And perhaps you don't express it, perhaps you feel, is it worth carrying on? Are you tempted to give up? Is your zeal, like these Hebrews, waning? Are you in danger or have you already become sluggish in your faith? Well, as this year opens before us, I want to bring to you the encouragements that the writers of the Hebrews gave to these first Hebrew Christians 2,000 years ago. They are as applicable to us today as they were to them then. And the first thing he encourages these Christians is to remember that God is not unjust. These Hebrew believers, they were demonstrating the reality of their faith. They weren't like those who'd apostatized. They hadn't given up their faith. He's able to write of the work and the love that they have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. They were a living example of our Saviour's words. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And they were doing so, and they were doing it for the right motive. They were doing it for his name. They were doing it that God might be glorified, that their Lord might be honoured. But sadly, though they were not like those who had deserted the gospel and had denied the Lord, they were becoming cast down. They, They were told their work for the Lord was becoming sluggish. The pressures of being a Christian were beginning to wear them down. Rather than their labours being appreciated, perhaps they felt ignored. Certainly, as we've said, they were like ourselves. They were insignificant in the eyes of the world. Perhaps they were conscious of their own spiritual decline. And they were being tempted to think, uh, was their labour really worthwhile? How easily we as believers can have such feelings. We're like these Hebrew believers, aren't we? We can labour, and when we're not recognised, when things go unnoticed, we feel perhaps it's unfair. Our hands begin to hang down. Uh, We not only perhaps feel we're insignificant in the eyes of the world, but perhaps we're insignificant in our fellowship. People don't seem to uh, notice we're there. Perhaps you labour in the background rather than in the foreground. And how easily the temptation to resentment lurks nearby. Well, whatever others might think, this is your encouragement. For God 
is not unjust to overlook your work. Every believer is known by the Lord. You may feel weak, you may mourn over your waywardness at times, but the Lord does not forget every service done for him and for his saints. The Lord knows not only your service, but he knows the difficulties that you face in seeking to fulfill that role that you have, in seeking to be a witness to him in this difficult day and age. Not to overlook means not to forget. How easily we forget one another. We forget to thank one another, perhaps, for doing something. But the Lord never forgets one service you do for him. However insignificant it may seem, he will acknowledge it on that great day in the world to come. We are reminded, aren't we, of our Saviour's words in Matthew 25 when he is speaking of that great and final day of judgment. We read there, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The Lord knows the work we do for him. We rejoice, don't we, in God's grace when we read uh, such words as, I will forgive their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. What a wonderful thought it is to us as believers. But here, if you like, is the flip sign of God's grace. He remembers your work for him. However weak you feel, when you do it for his name, he remembers, he records it, and he promises he will reward it. God is not unjust to overlook your work. Surely that's an encouragement for us to persevere. It was an encouragement given to these people here. The Lord knows. The Lord delights in you, believer. However insignificant others think you are. The God of heaven looks down in pleasure. What an encouragement to keep going. 
But then secondly, uh, these Hebrew Christians and we this evening encouraged by the fact that God is unchangeably truthful. We read in verses 11 and 12, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We're exhorted to persevere in the light of all that God has promised. We are encouraged to persevere and not grow weary, but to imitate those who have gone before us. Those who laboured for the Lord in the full assurance of hope that was set before them. They believed God. They believed the great promises that had been given to them. And they pressed on in faith and patience so that they might be heirs of the promises. And again, you may be disregarded by this world. You may feel your weakness as a Christian. But you, like the believers before you, can lay hold on the promises of God and know that God will fulfill them. Why? Because God is unchangeably truthful. And we are, this is illustrated for us in this passage by God's dealings with Abraham. We read in verses 13 uh, to 17 of God's dealings with him and the great promise that he received after his faith was tested in his willingness to offer up Isaac in obedience to the Lord. Abram's willingness stretched his faith beyond measure. And after God intervened before the actual offering of Isaac, he then made this great promise uh, to him. And we read of it in chapter 22 and at verse 17. I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring will pos shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. A promise given to Abraham that was only partially fulfilled in Abraham's day. Only partially fulfilled in the outfolding or unfolding of history in the Old Testament. But Abraham looked forward to its ultimate fulfillment. A fulfillment which is the very reason, uh, as we mentioned the incarnation this morning, the very reason why we celebrate the incarnation. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And the Lord Jesus was able to say, wasn't he, in his earthly ministry, your father Abram rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. What did Abram see? He saw God's promise to him being fulfilled, not only in the continuation of his family, in receiving Isaac figuratively back from the dead, but beyond his physical descendants, he saw in God's promise 
the coming of the one who would be a blessing to the whole world. He saw the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul was able to write, wasn't he? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. He fulfilled his promise. But why was Abram's faith so assured, so certain? Because God is true. Because God's word is true. Abraham believed every word of God is true. That fact flows from the very nature of who God is. Jesus in prayer could say, couldn't he? Your word is truth. God's very speaking of those words was enough to assure and to guarantee Abraham that the promise would be fulfilled. But God, in his great mercy, underlined, he wrote in bold, as it were, the certainty of his promises by taking an oath to its truthfulness. So when God should desire to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The taking of an oath is an appeal to a higher authority that one's words are true. In the Old Testament, a law was laid down that if an animal who was in the care of a neighbour or a friend was injured or stolen while being cared for, that neighbour had to take an oath and, and declare that it was not his fault. Today, we, in a court of law, uh, uh, perhaps not so much now, but certainly in the past, the taking of an oath was a recognition that we testify, we give evidence in the sight of a higher judge than the one who sits in the court. But with God, there is no higher authority. With him, there is no greater judge. He is the sovereign ruler of all things in heaven and earth. He is accountable to no other. But in an amazing act, as I say, of his grace, in amazing tenderness to Abraham and so to us, he swore by himself. God was saying to Abraham, he was saying to us, I am putting my reputation on the line. This is what I've said and I will keep it on the basis of who I am. Only God is able to swear by his name. And this he does. What is the guarantee that God will fulfill the promises? What is the assurance that every true believer will persevere to the end? It's not your strength, but God's character and God's truth. The great climax of God's promise is here given to us in these final verses. It is the la hope laid up, for, up, up before us. 
It is that assurance of eternal life in heaven to come. It is that final fruition of all God's promises that that people first given to the Saviour in eternity past would be gathered to him in eternity to come. And this hope is not the uncertain longings expressed by so many. It's not the I hope things will turn out better this year. I hope uh, my health will uh, be kept this year. I hope this or that will happen or this or that will not happen. I don't know, but I hope. No, this hope is the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, is how the writer to the Hebrews here describes it. It's not an anchor that drags with the winds and the waves of life so that our boat is finally wrecked. But it's an anchor which is firm, unmoving, buried in a foundation which can never be shaken. So then, last of all, to whom do these assurances apply? Who can claim these promises? Who can stand on this foundation? Who can know this anchor of the soul? It is those, we're told, and only those who have fled for refuge. They have fled for refuge, as we heard this morning, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have cast ourselves upon him. And we are now anchored, we are now joined to him. We have come to an end of ourselves. Though God might delight in the work that we do for him, these who have this strong assurance are those who have come to realise that their own works are but moving sands, a foundation which is guaranteed to fail as a means of bringing them to glory. And it is those, as I say, who have fled for refuge to the one who is the great theme of this book. The book starts, doesn't it, with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so he goes on. And the whole book unfolds the majesty and the work and the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the refuge for sinners. He is the one who having come into this world, having died and risen again, has now gone before us. What are we told? He's entered into the inner place behind the curtain. It's that image, isn't it, from the Old Testament. The high priest went once a year through the curtain on the Day of Atonement, carrying the blood of the Lamb, seeking forgiveness for the sins of the people for another year. But it had to be repeated again and again. But the Lord Jesus Christ has taken his one perfect sacrifice into heaven itself into the very presence of his Father. And he is forever 
our great representative. He there now is our great high priest. And anchored in him, we have the assurance that the way is open. All who cast themselves upon the Saviour, they find not only a refuge from their sins, but they discover this great fact that God's word, God's promises are true. For God has underwritten them himself. To be found in Christ now is a sure guarantee that you will be found in heaven at last. He is the transcendent hope of every Christian, the immovable foundation for every believer. This is the certainty of hope that the writer to the Hebrews speaks of, the anchor that is fixed in the Lord Jesus Christ. This year, as it keeps opening up, as March comes upon us, we begin to think about spring, begin to plan a summer holiday perhaps. Things may fail, Things will not go perhaps as you've planned. Things may well be more difficult for us. But press on. Keep going. The writer to the Hebrews goes on, doesn't he? In chapter 10, in verse 19, and he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In the light of all this, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Are your hopes tonight certain hopes? Or are they uncertain? I'm not speaking about whether Swansea win next week or Wales finally win the week after. But are your hopes for heaven certain or wavering? Do you have a false confidence that you are resting in your own works? Or have you seen the vanity of that and cast yourself upon the Lord Jesus Christ? He is, as we said this morning, the only refuge for sinners. Don't let your anchor drag in the treacherous waters of your own good works and vain hopes that everything will turn out well. It's the road to disaster. Turn to the only sure and certain refuge. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will keep you until that final day. When may he be glorified in all our lives. Amen.